I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. As Election Day draws near, this is a two-part episode of Q&A. You'll first hear from the Bipartisan Policy Center's Matthew Weil on mail-in balloting and other voting issues in 2020. Then, Laura Hautala of CNET on election security and the evolution of voting machines since the 1960s. We're looking at what has become something of a typical scene this year, which is long lines at polling places leading into Election Day 2020. Matt, while you study polling and elections for the Bipartisan Policy Center, this year, because of, of the COVID pandemic, do we have any real baselines to understand what's going on with the electorate going into this election? Certainly, I think that this election is going to be unlike anything we've seen in the past. So it's hard to know if there's a, a good corollary. Already at this point, we've seen far more early and absentee voting than we saw in 2016. And so it's really kind of off the charts um, popular this time around. I have a I have a chart that looks at early and in-person voting and how it's trended over the last couple of years. And as folks can see from watching it, the, the trend has been for more uh, prior voting, either by absentee or mail-in ballot, than in-person polling on Election Day. Uh, what is happening in the thinking about the conduct of elections that has led to this and then really accelerating this trend this year? Sure. It's been a, a trend about 20 years in the making. You know, ever since you know Colorado and Washington State and Oregon State really made it very easy for their, their voters to vote by mail, we're seeing that once voters have that option, they, they like that option. Clearly, during a pandemic, voting by mail is a good and safe option as well. And in addition to the five states that already were going to have uh, no excuse and um, proactive voting by mail in 2020, an additional five states are also this year mailing ballots to every eligible voter. That makes 10 states this year plus D.C. And other states are also making it much easier. But by most estimates, about 84 percent of Americans are going to have the chance to vote by mail this year. Well, going into this discussion, how about providing some baselines that will help people understand how large is the eligible U.S. electorate in 2020? The eligible U.S. electorate is somewhere in the range of about 180 million. I think we're expecting about 150 million ballots to be cast in 2020. And how about 137 million ballots cast in 2016. Okay, that was going to be my question is how does that compare with past presidential elections? So the anticipation, again, is how many this year? About 150 to 160 million. So uh, uh, leading into this, and we're to tell folks we're taping this on the Monday morning, a week out from Election Day, so eight days before official Election Day in the United States. Dave Wasserman, whom you know, who studies uh, especially house raises for the Cook, Cook Political Report, had, had uh, tweeted last night, breathtaking, statewide Texas just surpassed 80 percent of its total 2016 votes cast leading the nation, and there's still more than a week of voting to go. Is that what other states are seeing as we lead into Election Day? Yeah, I mean, it, it really is breathtaking. I think that's the right word for it. In, in 2016, we saw about 33 million absentee ballots cast. Already, again, as, a week of, as of a week out before the election, we already have 40 million returned. And there are another 46 million outstanding, according to the U.S. Elections Project. So I do think we are likely to see almost half of Americans voting by mail this time around. 
So what I would like to do to help people understand the challenges and opportunities for states and the overall tally this year is spend some time with each of those. Let me start with uh, in-person voting in advance of Election Day. How many states have, uh, are allowing that this year, and is that, again, an uptick in trend? I don't think it's an uptick, uptick in trend. We are seeing um, more states moving towards early voting. I think um, most famously this year we're seeing um, New York State and New York City voting, um, having some early voting options um, in a presidential election. It has been a trend that has slowed down. I think we're seeing more of the trend in voting by mail, but more states are trying to expand the early in-person voting options. About two-thirds of the states have some sort of early in-person option before Election Day. Yeah, in the Washington, D.C. area where we live, for example, Virginia started its its early voting in person today and Maryland tomorrow, about a week out of actual Election Day 2020. But there also have been some COVID-related experiments in states. Uh, and one I wanted to call to your attention, the Supreme Court actually got involved in uh, an effort in Alabama to start curbside voting because of the pandemic. And uh, I'm wondering how many many times this year with experiments for COVID, courts have had to get involved with things that states are wanting to do. Yeah, curbside voting is an option in many states. It's not something that states uh, highlight a lot. They don't advertise it that much. In some states, it's limited to voters of a certain age or of certain disabilities. Uh, it tends to be very resource intensive. So I think that that's what was happening in Alabama uh, when they first expanded it and then the court uh, pulled it back a little bit. I think these are, are good options and we should certainly certainly be looking at them in, in the future because you know, the voters are expecting new and more convenient options. And I think that election officials want to be where the voters are. As you've been monitoring the weeks leading up to Election Day, have there been any significant reports around the country of intimidation with in-person early voting? I think we're seeing some scattered reports, but I think that voters have to be you know, pretty discerning when they're seeing those reports. You know, one report in one place doesn't mean we're seeing widespread concerns across the country. It doesn't even mean we're seeing widespread concerns in any one uh, state or one locality. So again, there, there are scattered reports. I do think what we're seeing more of is some reports of very long lines or what seem to be very long lines. And, and part of that is because of COVID social distancing requirements. And some of it is real problems that I think that election officials are are trying to quickly address so that it does not uh, persist through this last week of voting and on Election Day. Well, while you mentioned the social distancing, uh, you have uh, been participating in seminars where they've been warning and having states plan for COVID-related staffing issues. Uh, enough people to work at the polls, enough people to be able to register people as they or sign in people as they come in. Uh, how is that actually turning out as you've been monitoring it? That that was certainly the concern I had early in the pandemic that there were just not going to be enough warm bodies to provide significant and robust voting in person, either during early voting or on election day. I think that you know I was not the only person calling for that certainly, and really. Um, many people have stepped up. There are many groups out there that have certainly um, recruited a new class of poll workers, and it's actually very impressive. And for the most part, we're not seeing the kind of shortages that we were most concerned about because, again, even just using data from 2016 and 2018, about half of all poll workers are over the age of 60 in this country. And since that is the, the risk category for COVID, you know, the concerns were real, and I think that that was borne out. 
So that, the fact that they were able to, raise, to uh, recruit so many new poll workers was great. The risk, though, doesn't disappear uh, on Election Day. You know, certainly we are now in a period of rising COVID infections, and in any one location, there could be situations where poll workers aren't able to show up on Election Day because they have to uh, quarantine. And that could result in polling places, you know, one-off polling places having to shut down or, or not open um, fully. So I do think there's still a risk there, but I think that election officials have tried to recruit backups um, and, and they're going to minimize that risk. Turning to mail-in balloting, and you referenced this earlier in our conversation, but I have a, a chart to put on screen, uh, statistics on screen, and this is from a report that National Public Radio did. 2020 mail-in ballotings, uh, nine states and Washington, D.C. automatically sent ballots to voters. 36 states, ballots sent by request, but uh, this time around, no excuse needed or fear of COVID-19 is accepted as a request. And then five states, ballots sent by request and a fear of COVID-19 is not among the accepted excuse needed. So this, again, is, is an enormous tick uptick in uh, mail-in balloting this year. And I want to go through some of the aspects of it. First of all, is the state's ability to handle the volume as these mail-in ballots come in. What kind of technology do states employ to process mail-in ballots? Well, I, I think that to take a step back, many states didn't have a whole lot of technology to process these ballots because you know, as, as recently as, as two and four years ago, uh, most states weren't seeing huge proportions of their electorate voting by mail. Most states, 30 states, had fewer than 15% of the ballots cast by mail. And so it was a very human-driven kind of one-off process. The request came in and somebody in the elections office had to process it and send out that ballot. There are technological solutions. Uh, and I think that we're seeing states try to employ more of those. And, and many states have upgraded their capacity to process these more automatically as, as opposed to having to handle it by humans. Are they getting uh, support from the federal government in doing the upgrades or is this state driven? So the federal government did appropriate $400 million in the CARES Act uh, back in May. I think that most election officials, most, most policymakers thought that was step one in the process and that there would be additional uh, federal support and that didn't materialize. What we have been seeing, and I think that was unexpected, is we're seeing some, some civil society, some, some philanthropists stepping up uh, where Congress may have. And certainly the, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative has now given about $400 million to states and localities to upgrade uh, voting equipment and absentee voting processes. Uh, the Schwarzenegger Foundation is doing the same. So I, I do think private philanthropy is stepping in where Congress was unable to find an agreement. Uh, and, and that is certainly helping states run their elections this year. So a second aspect of this is the capabilities of the Postal Service to get ballots to people in time and return them to state officials in time. Folks watching this are well familiar with the hearings that Congress held where the Postal Service Commissioner was called to testify. Lots of criticism from members of Congress about changes that were being made to the postal system. How do things stand as we head into Election Day? Uh, certainly at this point, again, a week out from Election Day, we are kind of at, at the the moment that if you're going to use the Postal Service, now is the time where you have to get that ballot in the mail, especially in those states where the ballot has to be received back by the election official by the close of polls on Election Day. You know, certainly the service standards you know, have been a little bit slower, and we don't want voters to unintentionally disenfranchise themselves by not getting those ballots back in time. Because even though we know only about 1% of ballots that are returned and submitted for counting get rejected, 
a huge proportion of those ballots that get rejected are, are rejected because they miss the deadlines. And, and that's the last reason we want the ballots to be rejected at this point. Voters who are concerned about using the Postal Service have access to uh, drop boxes. And again, here's been a point of conflict in some states about the accessibility of drop boxes and confusion about which boxes are official and which ones are being uh, done either for malicious reasons or or, uh, in an attempt to help voters drop. So give us an overview of the, the drop box situation across the country. Yeah, drop boxes have a lot of promise. I mean, certainly they've been used out west where we've seen a lot more voting by mail and they've been used for many election cycles. So these are safe and secure options. And and for me, I think that they are among the best options for voters choosing to vote by mail. A drop box is a one-to-one connection between the voter and the election official. There is no middleman. There is no postal service. The only people who have access to these secure lock boxes, drop boxes, are the election officials themselves. And so I think they are a great option. They are not an option everywhere, um, but some states have done a great job of rolling them out quickly. Um, you know, certainly here in Maryland, we haven't had them before. I was able to go to my local um, elections office and drop it in, in the Dropbox, although there were 200 other locations in the state. And so I think that we're going to see more of these in, in future years because this is a, a simple solution, a voter convenience option that is safe and secure. And, and honestly, in, from my perspective, one of the better options for voting by mail. The accessibility of drop boxes has been a point of contention. For example, in Texas, Governor Abbott limited the number up to one per county, including the state's most populous counties. People who criticized suggested that makes it less accessible for lower income people or folks who don't have access to their own personal transportation. Can you comment on that? And again, courts got involved there and upheld the governor's decision. But uh, how do we understand or how should we process decisions like that to limit availability? So the Texas decision is is more because the state doesn't even have drop boxes per se. They really have uh, drop sites where they are staffed by election uh, people. And uh, of course, if that's what's required by your law, you actually have to have a physical presence at all of these uh, sites from the elections office. That's going to be limiting. And I, I do think that Texas is one of the states that it is most difficult to vote by mail in. They've, they've chosen to go more towards the early in-person voting route. I, I do agree that certainly during a pandemic, that is not the best option necessarily for a lot of voters. Um, I do think that states really should be doing more to make voting uh, by mail convenience option work better. And in my view, making that work better includes having accessible drop boxes everywhere. Another aspect of uh, voting by by mail is following the rules as states set them up. In Pennsylvania, famously, over the past few weeks, there's been something called a naked ballot dispute, uh, which means that people have failed to include the privacy outer envelope as they've they've sent in their ballots. Uh, how complicated have you found the rules uh, around mail-in balloting and where have issues like this popped up across the country? Yeah, so the naked ballot issue, uh, I think that got a lot of press and I understand why. It, it isn't a problem everywhere. Most states aren't requiring those um, privacy sleeves within the outer envelope. But it, but you're, you're absolutely right that you know there's a, there are a lot of requirements when it comes to voting by mail. You have to make sure that signature is there. Uh, many times they want you to use the right color pen. Uh, in some cases, you need to have a witness or two witness signatures. Uh, and so making sure you're following all of those 
um, requirements is essential so that you can be sure your vote is going to get counted. Now, I do think that we're seeing states um, do better when it comes to designing the instructions and, and making it clear. But considering that we're going to have a lot of new uh, voters casting uh, vote by mail ballots this year, you know, I do have concerns that we may see higher rejection rates than we would have otherwise seen. And in states that are toss-up states, are the, is this one aspect going to be the source of uh, likely lawsuits? Yeah, I mean, certainly ballots cast in person uh, don't generally make their way into uh, lawsuits after Election Day because once they've been cast in person and they've been deposited in the voting machine, there's less to fight about. What we do know is that after election disputes tend to center on voting by mail ballots and provisional ballots because that's what's left to, to fight over. And so I, I do think that certainly the the uh, kind of range of, of options for, for the the candidates of the campaigns to fight over with these increased numbers of absentee ballots and likely provisional ballots as well um, will be a target of litigation after the fact in close states. Uh, the public has been hearing President Trump raising concerns about mail-in balloting throughout the fall. Here's an example of one of the times that he criticized the process. As far as the ballots are concerned, it's a disaster. A solicited ballot Okay, solicited is okay. You're soliciting, you're asking, they send it back, you send it back. I did that. If you have an unsolicited, they're sending millions of ballots all over the country. There's fraud. They found them in creeks. They found some with the name Trump, just happened to have the name Trump just the other day in a waste paper basket. They're being sent all over the place. They sent two in a Democrat area. They sent out a thousand ballots. Everybody got two ballots. This is going to be a fraud like you've never seen. How large a concern is fraud in mail-in balloting? You know, fraud is a, a very, very small percentage of mail-in ballots. And, and over the, the decades that we've seen it, we've seen only a couple hundred cases confirmed out of millions and millions of ballots cast. So I do not think fraud is a big problem. And there are many security features when it comes to absentee ballots. What has happened, it seems, as a result of this is uh, the University of Florida, which tracks the uh, the voting uh, steps before the election, again, reporting over 60 million people having participated eight days out. But there was a, a partisan split and the number of people who were opting to vote by mail uh, were in states where they count them and people who are, are not. Is it surprising to you that how you vote has become a partisan issue this year? Yeah, I, I wish it was. I, I think at this point, nothing surprises me about what could become partisan. But I do think it is making it a little more difficult for us to model out um, some of the uh, aspects that we, that we would normally try to be doing at this point. And certainly in the past, the breakdowns of voting by mail versus in-person voting tend to reflect just the, the electorate of the state. So if it's a more Republican state, you had more Republicans voting uh, by mail or voting early. And so with this kind of Democrats vote early and, and Republicans vote in person, uh, we really don't know um, what final turnout was going to be. So another issue with this year's balloting that has been raised is both foreign and domestic in interference in the process. About 10 days out from the election, a press conference held by the DNI, John Ratcliffe, and the FBI director, Christopher Wray. Uh, here is a clip where they talk about their concerns about both Russia and now Iran intending to disrupt this year's election in the United States. Let's listen. We would like to alert the public that we have identified that two foreign actors, Iran and Russia, have taken specific actions 
to influence public opinion relating to our elections. First, we have confirmed that some voter registration information has been obtained by Iran and separately by Russia. This data can be used by foreign actors to attempt to communicate false information to registered voters that they hope will cause confusion, sow chaos, and undermine your confidence in American democracy. Right after this press conference, you published your response to it. What was it? I think that most voters have to remember that voter registration rolls in this country are a public record. And what I didn't hear the DNI or the FBI director say was that they penetrated any of the secure voter registration rolls. It seems like what, what Russia and Iran may have accessed were roles that are publicly available to the parties, to the, the campaigns, so that they can actually reach out to voters. And that makes it incumbent on all American voters to be careful and be, be wary of what you're seeing. You know, don't be forwarding that email. Don't be uh, reposting that post or retweeting that tweet uh, if you haven't verified the information in, inside it. Because I do think that because we have done such a good job at um, certainly hardening the election systems in this country since 2016, uh, our foreign adversaries have fewer options to disrupt the process. One of the ones that's remaining and one of the easiest ones for them to do is to turn Americans against each other and to undermine confidence in the legitimacy of the election. And it's really, again, incumbent on all Americans to make sure that doesn't happen. One of the methods, of course, of doing that is uh, our, our fellow Americans using social media to spread misinformation, either intentionally or, uh, or unintentionally. Uh, what are your views of what the social media giants have done to try to curb that this election season? I think they are trying to go in the right direction. I, I, I do feel like they they sometimes have no good way of, of working because, you know, if they do one thing, one party doesn't like it. And if they do another thing, another party doesn't like it. I think they are trying to slow down the retweets. I, I know that Twitter is putting uh, a screen over um, retweets, making sure you think about it before you do it. I think that, you know, Facebook is doing a little bit more when it comes to fact checking and, and providing fact-based uh, answers to common questions. These are all good, but again, at the end of the day, these are social media platforms, you know, one-to-one -one, uh, from other Americans or foreign adversaries who want to, uh, you know, push, push their storylines. And so it's really, again, something that we as voters have to be a little more discerning about. If something doesn't sound right or something sounds sensational, it, it may just be that. And there's, there are ways to check the, the truth, um, the truth and, and that's usually your local election official. They have the best information. And if you ever have a question, that's where you should go, not to, to social media to find your answer. In our last few minutes together, let's talk about election night 2020. What are you anticipating that it will look like? I do think that we're going to have some states that are going to be uh, reporting data surprisingly fast. I do think that the narrative has been that because of all of the vote by mail, we're going to have endless delays and, and waits for uh, results. And, and that may be true in some states. It really comes down to how states process the vote by mail ballots that come in. Some states are already processing and counting those ballots. And in other states, they can't touch those ballots until the day before election day or on election day when they can start going through the millions of ballot backlog that they have. So states like Florida, for example, which is obviously going to be a state that everyone is watching at the presidential level, they will report the vast majority of their vote by mail and early ballots uh, early in the evening by about 8 p.m. Eastern time. 
and then we'll have to wait for another couple of hours to get the in-person voting. But Florida may be a state that can be called, you know, by 10 or 11 o'clock on election night because they will count so much of their early voting uh, quickly. But we have states like Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, three other states that could be determinative in this election. And they have they have policies that limit how fast or how early they can count their absentee ballots. And so if we're waiting on, on states like those to be um, called before we have an outcome, that could be where we end up having long delays into Thursday or Friday, potentially, before we have enough ballots counted to be uh, pretty certain about what the outcome is. Should voters have the confidence that even if their state is not one of those toss-up states, that if they have submitted a ballot, it will be counted? Is every vote counted? Yeah, there has been a persistent you know, rumor or myth for many years, many years, uh, by decades, honestly, about absentee ballots, that they aren't counted unless they have to be, unless the, the race is close. And, and that's kind of a ridiculous uh, argument for many reasons. One, no ballot is a single race ballot. There are many contests. So which race would have to be close to, to, to count those ballots? Absentee ballots are always counted. The process just lays out for when that can happen. And then, again, for many states, that, that's a longer process. Certainly what we're seeing uh, for this cycle is that states have extended the deadline after Election Day to uh, have those ballots returned in some, in some states. It may have to be postmarked by Election Day, and they'll accept it three or three days or seven days after Election Day. So the counting continues on and on um, after Election Day, and, and they will count all of them uh, this cycle. Any voter who casts a provisional ballot at the polls, after the state counts their absentee ballots is when they'll start counting those provisional ballots. So again, the process, the, the official counting process can take a week or more after Election Day um, to, to really complete. Susan Page of USA Today, who moderated the vice presidential debate, tweeted this prediction. Massive mail-in and early voting is here to stay post-pandemic with repercussions on who votes and how many vote in future elections. Uh, do you believe that this is going to change things forever? And if so, how do you see it changing the way presidential candidates campaign. I, I do agree with Susan Page that, again, when, once voters have access to these convenience options, the, the voting by mail and the early voting, they aren't going to accept policymakers who don't extend that in the future. So I, I do think that even though we've seen a slow trend towards more voting by mail over the past two decades, this is going to be a spike this year. And I, I do think we're going to see that at higher level remain going forward. What we've seen already this cycle is that it requires the vote, the campaigns to act earlier. You know, the so-called October surprise can't happen the week before Election Day like it happened in 2016 because many, many ballots have been counted, uh, cast already. I mean, as, as you said, as of a week out, we're talking about 60 million ballots already submitted for counting. That's a huge number. And I, I do anticipate that the number of ballots that are going to be submitted prior to Election Day will be over 50% of the entire electorate. So it just moves everything back, moves all of it earlier into the cycle. Uh, and, and that does have real implications for how candidates run their campaigns. A closing comment from you, and that is for someone who spends their professional life studying the U.S. electorate. Uh, how are you thinking about the fact that so many people are interested in this year's election? It's always exciting to me when we come to election season because uh, voters really do care about the process. This year, more than ever, though, I, I see voters and you know, celebrities and so many people talking about the actual voting process, about how we need to make it voter 
centric and make it easier for voters to actually participate. It's not all about just get out and vote. It's, well, vote early because you don't want to wait until the, until the election day when there could be a problem. Or make sure you're casting your absentee ballot accurately and you're following all the instructions. You know, that's very exciting to me because I do think that while we have a great system, we want to make sure our voters are doing it right. And, and this year, more than ever before, voters are really paying attention to the process and they are talking to us and telling us about what they want the process to be. And so I do hope that moving forward, policymakers are going to listen to the voters and make sure that they're improving the voting experience so that voters really turn out and then the process is as easy as it can be. So you're expecting there will be some rules and regulation changes in the years ahead in preparation for the 2024 elections? I, I really think so. And, and I think because, again, policymakers are going to be responsive to the, the voters and what voters want. And, and, and when they see how easy absentee voting is and early voting is, I just don't see states that don't have so much of that going back to the old ways. I think anybody watching or listening to this interview would agree with you that there have never been so many exhortations to vote in so many aspects of our lives as we've seen this year. Thank you very much, Matt Wow, for spending time with us today to talk to us about how 2020 election polling is is changing and how many people are participating in the process this year. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. For the second part of our conversation, we're going to turn to the voting technology and the changes in that. We're talking with Laura Hatala, who covers voting technology along with her larger beat of cyber technology and cyber threats for CNET, joining us from the West Coast. Laura Hatala, does it strike you as ironic that as you've been reporting on voting technology, the biggest advances this year are two paper stories, mail-in ballots and digital uh, voting paper records? Actually, that doesn't surprise me at all, because election security advocates have been pushing for paper records for years. And this is sort of the culmination or the furthest we've gotten on this process of of making sure we have paper records to audit elections and let voters be sure that their selections have gone through as they wanted. Before we dig a little bit more into the paper record story, I wanted to start with mail-in ballots because the numbers are surprising everyone. The amount, uh, as we're taping today, more than 60 million people have cast early ballots, the majority of those paper uh, mail-in ballots. How are those mail-in ballots being processed at the other end when they're received? So paper ballots are typically processed with the same kind of technology you would use on a Scantron test. These are optical scanners, and they can tell whether you've filled in the right bubble or connected the two arrows with the line properly. They're counting it with uh, this technology that can read paper and then tabulate it on a computer. How long have uh, these scanners been in use in the voting process? Well, scanners like this have been in use starting a little bit in the 60s and then really picking up steam uh, towards the end of the last century, where they became one of the top ways for uh, precincts to count votes. What are the advantages and challenges of using optical scanners? Well, the advantages are that you have a paper record. You're not recording a vote directly onto software or a machine that then becomes difficult to audit. Um, And so that just is probably the number one failsafe that cybersecurity experts have pushed for uh, over the past couple decades. And this technology makes that possible. It kind of is the best of both worlds in their minds because you know, we need speed. We need to be able to count votes quickly. It's part of what makes uh, elections feel uh, accountable and legitimate to voters um, when you can find out who won right away. But uh, it is also uh, leaves a paper record. So 
when there is an issue, you can go back and, and check the documents. What about um, some of the challenges? Oh, sorry, I was going to repeat the question about the challenges. Are they vulnerable to hacking? Well, all vote tabulation software could be vulnerable to hacking. So any machine that is connected to the internet at any point could be vulnerable to hacking. And so uh, voting agencies have to be very careful with this technology when they update the software, uh, when they do anything that connects it to the internet, because that's a, a point of failure where even if there's a voting machine that's not connected to the internet or you're writing on paper, which of course is free from hackers, uh, once you uh, are, once software comes on the picture, that's where you, you have to make sure that hackers would have no or very limited access to uh, that, that kind of software. Staying with uh, optical scanners for just a minute is uh, with the great increase in volume that states are experiencing. Uh, in your reporting, did you find out that they were prepared from a, a hardware standpoint? Mm-hmm. Or, or have sta- states bought enough to be able to process the, the amount that they need? That's a very good question. I think that some of the issues that uh, people are most concerned about with the paper ballots being returned by mail is less to do with whether or not the machines can handle the volume and more to do with whether voters are going to be able to fill them out correctly. Uh, Paper ballots have a high rejection rate, and uh, that means that they have more errors in them than ballots that are turned in at the polls typically. And so because of that, Uh, If you have not filled in your bubble correctly or used the wrong color pen um, or voted for too many candidates, there's no check on that to let you know you've made an error and uh, fix it. And so I know a lot of election security people are concerned about that and are hoping that voters will take extra time when filling out those ballots. Other things like making sure you're using the signature that you used when you registered to vote um, and putting your ballot in the right envelope, not putting two ballots from your household in the same envelope those kinds of things. So then by the time it gets to the precinct, of course, it's going to be a question of how much time those uh, voting agencies have. So some states are limited in when they can start processing ballots and others aren't. It could be a crunch in the places where those optical scanners are running overtime. The people in the elections agencies are really uh, trying to get those processed as quickly as possible. That's also where we could see uh, kind of slower election returns. Um, and so I think that's going to have an effect on election night when we have uh, states that can't um, count their ballots until a certain time. They're going to have a they're going to take a little bit longer to finish counting the ballots. Well, let me turn to the big change since 2016, and that is the paper records for digital voting machines that people will encounter when they vote in person this year. This was necessitated by the 2016 election. What happened then that necessitated the big change? So in 2016, there was just the culmination of years of concerns about security and voting machines. Uh, Since 2000, states had been purchasing a lot of electronic voting machines, some of which are called DREs or direct reporting electronic machines. Um, And many of those don't have any paper record that a voter can verify to make sure their votes were counted correctly. Um, And so that raised a lot of concerns. computer scientists immediately pointed out that anything with software can either have flaws that count votes incorrectly or be vulnerable to hackers. Um, And they said, even though these voting machines are supposed to never be connected to the internet, even though you would have to hack them in person, and each state has different machines and even at a county by county level, that makes it a difficult thing for hackers to break into, but not impossible. And the real problem is just not being able to say 
one way or another, have hackers uh, had access to this? Could there be a change in these votes? And paper records are really a vital part of being able to answer that question and reassure voters, yes, this was counted correctly. Um, and so over the past um, 10 years or so, states have been moving away from those paperless voting machines and have been um, investing in technology that has, even if it's a touchscreen uh, voting machine, it has a paper record that voters can verify. And not only that, um, elections officials can use those paper records to do audits. And those audits are called risk limiting audits and they're kind of the gold standard as far as election security folks are concerned. They let uh, elections agencies take a, a small but significant number of ballots and look at them for any inconsistencies. And that is just a statistical thing that can flag a larger problem. And that could trigger something like a larger audit or a recount. Um, and that can find things like hackers, um, but it can also just find misconfigured software that is you know, recording the wrong thing. Um, so it's important for all kinds of things, but really just for the integrity of the vote. What percentage of the machines that Americans will be using this election day and actually week for early voting uh, will have paper records this year? Uh, quite a few more. I don't have the exact percentage, but I can tell you there are still some used in some counties in Texas, a lot of Louisiana and, and other states. So it's a small handful of, of populous states, of course, uh, that do still have some of these machines. Um, and uh, that is still definitely a concern. Uh, it, the good news is that it is a smaller target. If hackers did want to target those, um, you know, they would have to really focus on those areas. Um, and also, it, it isn't the only concern that election security officials had in 2016. Um, the other major thing that happened was that, you know, allegedly uh, Russian-affiliated nation-state hackers targeted voter registration databases. They probed the systems in all 50 states, and it looks like uh, in about four states or counties, they were able to actually access those databases. And of course, you know, that's not affecting votes necessarily, but it could affect, it could affect who can vote. Um, and so that is another major concern that's been addressed over the past uh, two to four years and basically uh, has, you know, worked with election agencies of the federal government to secure those systems and make it a lot harder for somebody to access them with just a username and password. Um, that wasn't very robust security for those for those databases. And uh, so that's been improved a lot. And one of the things that uh, the federal government has been concerned about going into this election is a ransomware attack on those voter registration databases. And that's when hackers basically lock up files uh, with impossible to crack encryption. And typically they'll demand money in response, uh, in return for those files hence the name ransomware, but they don't always demand money and they don't always give the files back. So it was something the federal government specifically said could be used to sow chaos um, and deny access to voter records in the lead up to the elections. So that was another thing that they worked on, locking down and making sure, uh, you know, wouldn't be vulnerable in this election. And those kinds of ransomware attacks wouldn't necessarily be the work of foreign uh, in interference. It could also be domestic people who are interested in sowing some discord. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, it's not something that necessarily takes a, a, a huge, um, well-funded operation to carry out, depending on the level of security for that particular database. And anyone who wanted to create chaos could do it. Uh, you know, the federal government has said there are motivated foreign actors who, who might be interested in targeting it, though. 
Is there a, a story to tell our viewers? Because uh, in our tradition in this country is that all the states handle their own elections individually. Uh, and, and so you've got lots of different systems and rules and regulations going on here. But is there a story over the last decade or so of public, uh, state, federal, and then the private tech industry and coming together in a partnership to help address election-related issues? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's definitely the case. Um, so, yes, the elections are uh, run by states, and uh, that is uh, sometimes also handed down to the county level. And this creates quite a patchwork quilt of uh, different policies, technologies, and protocols. Um, and that is something that just adds a huge layer of complexity to our election system. Uh, so to to improve things, you have to work with each and every one of these agencies. And uh, the federal government is not in charge. Uh, they can offer assistance. And so this has been really a story of the federal government offering assistance um, through a variety of agencies and many states taking them up on that um, in order to secure systems. The states can also choose to get similar help from private vendors. Uh, and uh, there is a, a large industry of vendors out there working to help uh, these elections agencies do a better job of securing these really vital systems. Um, and there's also a lot of participation from the cybersecurity community, although there's sometimes a little bit of tension between people who uh, are there to poke holes in systems and point out the flaws and the people who are trying to use those systems to help people vote. You know, that's not always a, a, a warm relationship, but there have been some really interesting partnerships of, uh, you know, trying to suggest ways that you can uh, have more secure technology and, and maybe even build it together. Uh, there's a, a, there was a collaboration in Texas uh, along those lines where they actually invented their own machine that uh, attached uh, a printer and uh, you know, allowed for the machines to create a paper record. Uh, that, that machine didn't end up getting built and used uh, in, in the mainstream, but it, it was part of a larger conversation of, you know, this needs to be better and this is what it needs to look like. The machines that are in widespread use today really started to come online in the early 2000s after the 2000 contested election. You've written some interesting history pieces about voting, and I wanted to spend a little bit of time on that. In 2000, the Bush v. Gore, and people will remember the stories of the hanging chads and butterfly ballots in, in Florida, uh, people were using, uh, states were, rather, were using uh, a different kind of technology. What was the prevalent type of technology 20 years ago? So the Florida ballots were punch card ballots. And the reason we ever had punch card ballots is very interesting to me. These were paper punch cards that were, uh, you, voters made their selections with a stylus by punching a hole through the card in the appropriate place. And the reason we had these is because in the 1960s, we had mainframe computers that took in data through punch cards. Uh, they, you could program them or you could, you could um, put in data into a computer with a punch card. And so this was literally a computer programming tool that we were punching holes into. Um, and it, it was a huge improvement in a lot of ways because the previous gear and lever machines were huge and difficult to maintain. Um, and when you lived in a really populous county with a lot of things on the ballot, those those machines just were covered in, in dials and, and knots that you had to turn and uh, were just cumbersome. And so this shrunk the ballot down onto these punch cards and, and you, could, you could page through them and, and make your selections. But uh, it, so that was a, a major improvement and also allowed for really speedy um, 
counting of the votes. Uh, of course, what we learned uh, was that when there's a really close election, uh, if voters don't mark their ballots clearly, don't punch all the way through, if they leave a hanging chat or a pregnant chat or a dimpled chat, then voter intent is really difficult to figure out uh, during a recount. And that, that became quite a problem in 2000. Uh, that marked the, the death knell of punch card ballots. They were still actually used for a little while later. And in fact, in the 2003 um, governor recall election in California, uh, there were 135 candidates vying to replace then Governor Gray Davis, and LA County still had punch card ballots, so they had ballots with all of those candidates on them. Um, and they did go away essentially after that point because uh, that caused so much chaos. And the federal government said, "Well, we need better technology. These are punch cards from the 1960s. Um, what can we do?" And since the 1980s, uh, electronic voting machines had been in development. Uh, and had been used, uh, and they were originally just as big as those um, those dial and lever machines. Uh, they had the whole ballot on one giant screen, um, and and you kind of pressed it in a it was electromechanical. It would, it would record it with the pressure of your hand, um, and those developed then into the touchscreen and uh, dial computer ballots that we're used to uh, in many places of the country uh, now. Uh, but, it, you know, at the time, even though computer scientists said this is a problem, these could be hacked, um, that was what was on offer for a lot of states. Some states went for um, more optical scanners. They invested federal money in optical scanners after the 2000 election. But other states went towards these paperless DRE machines um, that later became problematic in their own regard. So it's really been a progression of moving from one older technology to another. Um, and it's kind of a story of, you know, voting technology moves slowly because, you know, government spending moves slowly. So the technology of voting is typically just not in line with where we are with the technology of, you know, computers in our daily lives. And I don't want to leave the history of uh, computer processing of votes without getting the name in of the 1964 machine, just because it's so 1960s. It was called the Votomatic. And, and how large uh, an, a breakthrough in technology was the Votomatic in 1964 when, when it was introduced? I mean, it was right up there with, you know, these were the computers we were using to, to make calculations for the space program. This is uh, a major advancement to be able to count votes quickly. The, the um, gear and lever machines were uh, tabulated by looking at, at little dials that looked like odometers on the back of the machines and writing down that number and then adding them all together. Uh, so being able to just insert the votes into a computer was a huge advancement. And yes, Votomatic does sound like something out of the Jetsons. It was, it was very 1960s and uh, it just sort of added an air of, of modernity to everything. Well, some of our older viewers may uh, not know about the Votomatic. I'm sure many of them will remember the gears and lever machine that you described because they were in widespread use for a very long time in, in precincts around the country. Uh, let, let's move to 2002 because the federal government did get very involved at that point after the election and passed uh, a law called the Help America Vote Act. Let's listen to President George W. Bush talk about that legislation as it was signed. Today, I'm proud to sign into law an important reform for our nation. Americans are a self-governing people 
and the central commitment of self-government is free and fair elections. The Help America Vote Act of 2002 is a bipartisan measure to help states and localities update their systems of voting and ensure the integrity of elections in America. How much money did that pump into the system from the federal government? Millions. Um, and the states really went on shopping sprees as, and their counties as well. Uh, it was it was quite a bit. Uh, uh, it, it created a rush on voting technology. And uh, it's interesting because it was it was basically a one-time deal. So the effect was that, that what states got was what they got. And, and for that reason, a lot of it is, is still in place, although there has been a, a huge effort to replace the paperless machines. Um, it, that influx of cash really shaped the landscape today of voting technology. Well, we're uh, talking about some of the challenges all along the way to voting technology, but particularly this year. Uh, In one of your stories, uh, you talked uh, about the uh, federal government's involvement in hardening systems against the risk and quoted uh, the director of the CISA, and uh, his name is Krebs, and he said the U.S. is still at risk from digital threats in addition to the challenges of voting in a pandemic. His agency's biggest concerns are ransomware, which you talked about earlier, that exposed uh, and visible on the Internet, including voter registration databases and electronic voter rolls. As a result, CSA launched a program to help the state and local election officials make sure they're securing those systems. Americans may not even be familiar with the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. What is its mandate and what's it been doing to help elections? Well, as as the name may imply, because it has security in it twice, um, the CISA or CISA is uh, an agency that's tasked with securing our infrastructure. uh, And in, uh, in that regard, the election system has been made part of the critical infrastructure system of of the United States. And that includes things like the electrical grid and the financial system. And so this agency's mandate is to help secure it um, and uh, be aware of vulnerabilities, warn states of the risk, uh, kind of centralize the information and understanding of the risks to these systems and communicate with states because it is such a patchwork of agencies that are securing our elections. And that's by design to have the authority reside within the state, but it makes it so that if there is a known threat, getting the word out about that really falls to somebody outside of that system. And and that's kind of where CISA has stepped in with their cybersecurity expertise. In one of your most recent pieces, you reported that because of all of these considerable threats to uh, in-person machines and the hardware, and also because of the pandemic, that there's a renewed interest in online voting. Uh, Are we close to a workable online voting system for this country or even individual states? So the short answer is no, with a caveat. Uh, Online voting, uh, cybersecurity experts, several of them told me, we're not even close to having the technology needed to secure online voting for the general public. That being said, we do have it for a small uh, subset of voters, and those voters include military and overseas voters, um, as well as some disabled voters. And it it doesn't look like the way you think. You're not filling out a ballot online and hitting send. Uh, It is essentially uh, receiving your ballot in a PDF file on an email or fax or downloading it from a web portal. 
And a small section of those voters can then go ahead and mark the ballot on their computer and then print it out and mail it in. And an even smaller uh, subset of those voters can actually save an image of that filled out signed ballot and then either return it by email or fax or on that web portal. Um, and it's just, it is a small group of voters and uh, it enfranchises people who either have to deal with a really onerous international mail system or who couldn't vote independently if they didn't have at least an online ballot marking um, process. And that includes people with uh, mobility disabilities or low vision who may not be able to see a paper ballot. I spoke with uh, a blind voter who in the last election was in college and would have been an absentee voter, but uh, she couldn't fill out her paper ballot without help from a friend and she just didn't feel comfortable with that. So she didn't vote. Um, and now that voter lives in Pennsylvania and she is looking forward to be able to mark her ballot on a computer screen with the assistance of her screen reading technology. So now she can mark her ballot privately, print it out and she's going to mail it back in uh, because that's what Pennsylvania requires. Some voters in other states like Delaware could return by fax or email or in yet other states that could send it back on the web portal. Um, Go ahead. You write about the the real challenge of turning something in by email or by fax is the, the loss of privacy. Why is that so important? Well, the reason that that is so important is you're leaving your right to a secret ballot in generally speaking when you're using these systems to return your marked ballot. Uh, that's a really big deal. We embraced the private ballot, the secret ballot in the United States in the, in the 1800s, really it, it became a major cause uh, after the Civil War to basically end political corruption to keep coercion out of the vote. Um, and it, you're waiving your right to privacy in part because your name is attached to your ballot as it travels to your elections agency uh, electronically. It's hard to separate your identity from it right away. It will, you know, eventually your ballot will be processed anonymously. But it also is, is so exposed to hackers that email and fax transmissions are not secure. They're not a secure way to send information that is supposed to be anonymous and extremely secret. Uh, so that, you know, that's a big deal to waive that, uh, that right. And something that people who want to use those systems, if they're eligible, do need to weigh. What have the experts told you is the timeline for uh, I, uh, online voting for the majority of Americans, given the ease of being able to do it on your own timetable from your own device? Right. So I've been told anywhere from at least 10 years to decades uh, before we can all vote online. And the reason for that is that uh, <clears throat> voting is not like banking, for example. Banking, you are, it is not anonymous. Your name is attached to every aspect of your banking transactions. Um, and so we don't have a technology that can secure the vote and keep it anonymous, uh, we would need a lot of advances. The other aspect, and this is just kind of a run of the mill thing that affects everyone, is we would be voting on our personal devices and we're not yet at a place where our personal devices are completely secure. You know, we have uh, all the software on our computers to hopefully keep them safe from hackers, but it, it's not a guarantee. So uh, if hackers could um, install malware or, you know, get you to redirect you to a malicious website, they could get access to your computer and change your votes um, as you're casting them. Then there's just the whole internet infrastructure that you're sending your ballot across um, <clears throat> when you're returning it to your, to your election agency. 
that is, you know, there are servers in other countries. Uh, we don't control that inter infrastructure. And so we would need really solid encryption technology to lock up those ballot files as they cross the internet. And um, security experts say we're also just not there yet. And the last thing is fraud detection. You know, with banking, fraud is built into the cost of doing business. It is a, somewhat of an acceptable risk. It's obviously something that financial institutions work hard to reduce, but it's something they know is going to happen and they can account for it. They know exactly how much it's gonna cost them. With, with voting, there isn't an acceptable fraud risk and there isn't, uh, you know, something, it's not something you can kind of build into the system of, oh, I guess we have a certain percentage of corrupted ballots that hackers got their, their hands on. Um, and finally, to address that problem, we need fraud detection technology that can tell votes are corrupted before they're counted. So there's just not any of any corrupted votes counted. And we also don't have that technology yet. So if we're going to uh, ramp this up to the general public, there's going to need to be a lot of advances. As we close with Election Day 2020 just uh, really hours away at this point, uh, what can you tell our viewers about your level of confidence after all your reporting you've been doing this about the security of this year's election and its ultimate validity? I think that cybersecurity experts are less concerned right now about uh, the threats to vote counting than they have been in years past. And that's a really good thing. Uh, that's because of the increase of paper records and increased uh, coordination among the states and federal government. Uh, there's a lot of reasons to feel good uh, that the security of this election will be better. Uh, I think that the major areas of concern have to do with how the election is perceived and the fact that there could be delays in vote counting for a variety of reasons, whether all of those millions and millions of mail-in ballots get processed in time, get returned on time, are marked clearly, um, and, and all the other reasons why we may not know exactly who won right away, uh, that leaves a big opening for misinformation, confusion, and even intentional disinformation campaigns to, to amplify that confusion. Um, if there is a feeling like something is going wrong with the way the votes are counted, uh, that could lead to a lack of trust in the election. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of cybersecurity experts are focused as election day nears to see whether that's going to turn into a major problem uh, where people are losing trust. Laura Hautala, thank you so much. We're writing about this for many months now for CNET. We appreciate all your information for C-SPAN's Q&A. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org with your questions, comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.